You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's books and comics show here for star trek we're so excited to be back uh, me and chris jones uh chris it feels as though we have been caught in some sort of temporal loop and now we're back at 2012 i i think so it feels that way you know i just slipped on these literary pants for the first time in a while, and they feel a little bit tight, Matthew. I think some years have gone by since we've shared the <laughs> mic to talk Star Trek books and comics. Uh, absolutely have changed. There's been a lot of changes, uh, but uh, super excited that we are back to talk about some Star Trek books and comics. And, and really, uh, we have... It does kind of feel like 2012 because we have a, a new comic that's going to be coming out, Chris, here uh, for our new section. Uh, they're going to be doing a new Star Trek Voyager comic called Seven's Reckoning, which, you know, I feel like is the perfect time to bring out uh, a new Seven comic or Seven-centric comic because, you know, she's just right. had a big role in uh, Star Trek Picard, so... Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind for me is that, you know, Seven is in the limelight right now. She had the big part on Picard. And of course, Seven is one of the favorite characters of many Voyager fans. Uh, She's one of my favorite characters from Voyager as well. And thinking about... Now, I didn't look into the timeline of when this comic uh, was in development versus Too Long a Sacrifice, the DS9 one that's focused on Odo a bit. But... Perhaps we're going to be getting more of these like comic four-part miniseries where we get to really focus on particular characters mm-hmm. in particular series, and that's always fun. Well, and I, I mean, I think it's a good idea, too, because to me, uh, many times in comics, uh, shorter-run series tend to actually be better than ongoing series because yeah. uh, uh, an author uh, for the comic has a whole story in mind. And therefore, you know, you're not trying to fill space with certain issues. You know, you don't get that filler issue. And so I'm actually really excited to to read this. And, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, like you said, we've been getting too long a sacrifice as well with the Deep Space Nine. It it does kind of feel like we're almost in that heyday of Star Trek back in the 90s where this stuff was out all the time. So very, uh, to me, great, great move here by IDW to to bring back a, a comic like this. And obviously, like you said, perfect time because Seven is one of people's favorite characters from Voyager, even if you're not a Voyager fan. Most people like that character, and part of that is because she had such a wonderful arc. And so I'm really interested to see how they'll add to her story with this four-part series. Yeah. And just to make a point about, you said it feels like we're back in that heyday, that golden age, where all this stuff is out. And it's true, we have so much stuff coming. And in particular, related to what we do on this show and to our guest today, 
David Mack. We're going to talk about his book, More Beautiful Than Death. I was able not only to read the ebook version, but also listen to the audiobook version of that book because finally, once again, all the new Star Trek books that are coming out have audio versions. And that is, I think, one of the most wonderful parts of this resurgence in the franchise is that once again, they're putting money into producing audio versions of novels. Yeah, that's true. Well, and and on that, you know, the books that we're getting now are in a larger uh, paperback format, the trade paperback format, which uh, right. is so much yep. more conducive to reading anyway. I mean, I, I still read them digitally because it's easier for me, but, um, you know, I, I appreciate them doing that with the actual physical copies, which yeah. I just think they're more attractive, you know, and, and they're much easier to read than um, your your basic mass market paperback that's, you know, I, I'm a guy, I don't like my spines bent and stuff like that. So reading <laughs> yeah. a, ma- a mass market is so frustrating, whereas trade paperback is, is just perfect for yeah. actually reading a book. So Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, looking forward to this coming out, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when it does. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, and uh, we did want to mention, you know, uh, know that Bruce and Dan had covered the first uh, issue of uh, Too Long a, not uh, Too Long a Sacrifice is, is the name of the Deep Space Nine comics. But Chris and I are going to go ahead and just let that finish out, and then we'll cover the whole thing as a whole uh, once it's done. So we're really excited to be able to do that, and we'll bring it to you as an entire episode uh, as the actual feature. So I think that'll be really fun. Um, yeah, but, that's uh, going to yeah. be fun as, as the orb. We'll bring a little bit of the orb over to literary tracks so right. we can yeah. cover that full DS9 We'll story. open the orb of literature, you know? And so... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're so excited to be back. And what a better way to celebrate being back, Chris, than having one of our favorite guests, David Mack, uh, on to talk about his latest book, More Beautiful Than Death, set from the Kelvin timeline. So I don't know about you, but I think it's time to hop in with David. I'm ready. Well, Chris, uh, it's it's really exciting uh, to be back here uh, on the other side of the page uh, as uh, we are joined by an author, which is always the best part of Literary Treks, is getting to talk to the authors and, and um, learn about uh, the behind the scenes of the book. Uh, and so, so excited to have back fan favorite David Mack. How's it going, David? Going pretty well. And thanks for having me back on the show. It's always a pleasure to come on. Welcome, yeah, David. Of course. Great to have you. Thank you. So... David, this may be one of your most interesting books in the sense that it has been a long road, as they say, uh, (laughs) getting from there to here when it comes to this book actually being published. Because I remember back uh, when we first started Larry Trex, you had you had been talking about, you know, writing this book and everything. And we were it had a release date and then it got pulled. And so, like, I just wanted to ask you. What was the experience like for you when they told you, hey, we're actually going to publish that book that you wrote almost 10 years ago? It was a pleasant surprise. It came out of nowhere late last fall, fall of 2019. And I just got an email one day from one of my editors saying, after all these years, we're pulling the book off the shelf. It's being scheduled for summer of 2020. And we would like you to go through the book and do a polishing graft, clean it up, and clean up any little details that maybe have fallen out of sync with the Kelvinverse cinematic continuity. And I was like, all right, uh, sure. I want a book after <laughs> 10 years, and suddenly it's uh, coming out. Sure, great. 
Um, so I was pretty pretty psyched about that. I was always a little disappointed about it having been uh, pulled off the schedule, not for any reason related to the book itself, but rather because of misunderstandings about uh, the coordination of tie-ins with the core property and uh, development ideas and wanting to preserve certain avenues for the creative team at Bad Robot, et cetera, et cetera. And so it uh, was really just kind of this thing where I was like, huh, you know, I thought I was going to have only one book out in 2020, and suddenly I've got two books out in 2020, which is always a good thing. And then by sheer coincidence, because I needed to push uh, the release date on my original novel with Tor due to rewrites that I asked for permission to do, Originally, they were going to release my original novel in June, and then the Star Trek novel, More Beautiful Than Death, was going to follow in August. But because of COVID-19 and supply chain disruptions, etc., my original novel got postponed a second time, and by coincidence, ended up being released on the same day as More Beautiful Than Death. So I had <laughs> a double book birthday on August 11. I had two books from two different publishers out on the same day. It's sort of like Brothers from Other Mothers, but different. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. fantastic. That's fantastic, though. I mean, I, I know that's great for you as an author uh, to, to be able to have that blessing. Obviously, you know, you've been working on your original series for so long, too. Um, but then to have this just come as, as a whim, be like, oh, yeah, we're going to publish this book. Like, that's a huge plus for you. Uh, so um, were, were there any major changes that you had to make at all? Or was it just was it really just some some cleanup work that you did to to, to make it? Uh, and was there anything that didn't fit um, anymore after, you know, I guess we the last movie we had was Beyond a few years ago. So um, did everything still work for the most part? For the most part, yes. The forward, or the historian's note, as we call it in Star Trek books, specifies that the story takes place a few months after the events of the first film. So it was pretty well grounded in the period uh, of Star Trek Kelvinverse history, you know, right after the first feature film. So I didn't have to worry too much about incorporating continuity notes from the second and third film. The only major stumbling block was that there was a single line of dialogue in Star Trek Into Darkness when Kirk boasts to Admiral Pike or somebody else at Starfleet Command, uh, it's been X number of years and I haven't lost a single person under my command. And I'm like, oh, you jerk. You had to set an absolute. You had to lay down the law that you've lost not a single person. So every tie-in that is set between the first and second movie involving the Enterprise crew, there can never be a fatality. You can never have a fatality on Kirk's crew. Right. So the original draft of my story had included some fatalities, and it was going to be dealing in part with how Kirk, as a young, freshly minted commanding officer, mm. deals with the loss of people under his command for the first time and what that's like for him. And I had to pull some of that. And I had to rewrite some of the action sequences and change some of the rules of engagement, uh, as one might refer to them, so that the bad guys of the story, their deathly touch powers and whatever, are really only fatal to our alien guests of the week. They are dangerous and debilitating to the humanoid members of Kirk's crew, but not fatal. 
And that was how I skirted around that. And, you know, people who are used to seeing that element in my work will probably see right. where the file, you know, where the serial numbers had to get filed off on that part of the right. narrative. What's going on um, with David? Yeah. Why didn't He's he kill people that That's not like him. So um, David just can't wait to write the novel between in, Into Darkness and Beyond. So everybody right. dies. That's right. You die. She dies. Everybody dies. As, David's as handing out death like Oprah. With an all you die and crew. you die and you die. <laughs> and you get a grisly death and you yeah, get a exactly. grisly death and you get a grisly death. Yes, oh, I love like it. That. I love it. That's it'll so like funny that. uh, because as I was reading the book, that is one of the things I realized is like, oh, David can't do the thing that he would normally do. And obviously the thing I think you you rightly wanted to do with the story, which is just talk about what it is like for Kirk to be this young commander and have to face those t- that that type of situation uh and so uh but i think honestly the way you handled it you handled it well and i don't think it had a detriment to the story to not be able to go down that road because to me this book you were able to do a lot of other things with these characters which i felt like were just as important for their growth as you know you take it then into account with the other two movies that are to come well thank you um, i certainly hope that was the case Obviously, as I had to refocus the story, uh, it became more about questions of belief, questions of self-determination, and whether one is willing to accept a spiritual view of one's place in the universe, whether one is open to considering non-rational explanations or simply accepting that maybe not everything has a rational explanation, or if it does, we don't yet possess the tools to understand it uh which is what jim kirk is dealing with when he has this alien mystic telling him that he's got to you know balance the scales for mistakes in two of his past lives um which was you know sort of a, a funny thing to sort of subject kirk to uh having him deal with that um but yeah i mean the only other major changes were actually there were no other major changes the only other changes i should say were grammatical sentence structure i went through polished up a lot of the prose cleaned up a lot of unnecessary dialogue markers got rid of things tried to make it tighter cleaner i tried to take into account that when i wrote it star trek was not doing a lot of audiobooks it wasn't something that was on my mind right but since then the audiobook market has become very important for star trek and now most new Star Trek novels get the audiobook treatment. And it changes the way that one writes. If one is aware of the fact that this is going to be read by a narrator who is going to be bringing some measure of personality to the voices of the characters, then you don't really need a profusion of he said, she said, etc., right. as you normally would have. In fact, having the narrator be obligated to read that part of the text often throws people out of the story when they're listening to an audio book. So I got more into the habit of finding ways to tag bits of dialogue by ascribing action to a character immediately prior to the dialogue or, uh, having a line of dialogue start and then attributing it in the middle with a, a quick aside but mostly I tried to let go of he said, she said, dialogue markers, uh, not because they're obsolete, but because 
I know that they can be stumbling blocks during narration for audiobooks, and that's now a a concern. I think that as audiobooks become bigger for more and more publishers mm-hmm. uh, and more writers adapt to that production reality, I think it's going to change the style of prose for many writers, uh, particularly in genre books, but I think just across the board as we adapt to writing books that are easily adapted into audiobook format. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, David, because actually I listened to the audiobook version of More Beautiful Than Death uh, preparing for this show, and it's narrated by Robert Petkoff, who does a lot of the Star Trek books now, and he did the various voices as well. Mm-hmm. It's quite an enjoyable listen, but I, what I often do, and I did in this case too, is I listen to the audiobook and I follow along when I'm on a train or if I have time sitting down with the ebook version because I like to highlight things. And uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about how it affects your writing style, though. Well, also, there's, we went into that a little bit. Robert and I uh, recorded a video where we talked about his experience narrating the book, my experience writing it. We asked each other some questions back and forth. I don't know if you saw that video. There's a link to it. Uh, from the More Beautiful Than Death uh, book detail page on my website. Uh, and I tweeted out the link and, uh, you know, maybe promoted it on Facebook. But Robert and I had a really interesting conversation, which was video recorded uh, very helpfully by uh, a person uh, at Simon & Schuster. And they edited that video and put it together for us. And uh, So, yeah, it, it was an interesting experience because I've gotten used to, of course, the fact that Robert is in many cases, the go-to reader, not always, but he's very frequently chosen. He's recorded, I think somewhere between 25 and 30 Star Trek novels for audiobook now, which is very impressive. Um, but yeah, uh, audiobooks are just so big now you have to take them into account. Yeah. Uh, and there are certain publishing operations like Serial Box. They publish primarily in ebook format, but they also parallel publish in audiobook. And I was consulting with them, or actually meeting with them about a project that ended up not going forward. But one of the things that we were advised about early on in the production process, talking with Marco Palmieri, uh, former Star Trek books editor, now vice president of content over at Serial Box, uh, he was explaining to us when you write the prose, you have to think about the audiobook. Think in terms of dropping dialogue markers. Uh, you know, think in terms of if you've got this line here, don't have like eight paragraphs of descriptive text, and then the response to that line of dialogue. Think more right. in terms of call and response. Find ways to more, you know, to better integrate descriptive prose, action prose, and dialogue. Uh, it says think in terms of describing sound effects that you know our audio team will drop in some of those effects our narrator will still read them but think in terms of you know effects that we can drop into the background behind narration behind dialogue um so that's a case of where they're being very proactive and they're meeting with the writers before the manuscripts are executed and explaining this is the vision this is how we'd like to incorporate it Uh, We're not just going to do straight up narration. It'll be narration with a limited degree of sound effects, possibly music, uh, and take that into account when you do your work. So, yeah, the industry is continuing to evolve uh, in really interesting ways. And I think it's fun. It's always nice as a writer to have some sort of new challenge uh, to think about, some new approach 
that requires one to suddenly think differently about something you maybe have taken for granted. It's nice to get a little shock to the system once in a while. Right. Yeah. Well, and another way to have people enjoy your book. I mean, you know, if Mm -hmm. more people get an opportunity to, to, you know, listen to the book as well as read it, I mean, all the better. I'm happy for any way that people like to get the stories I tell. If they want to get an audiobook version, I think that's great. Ebooks, terrific. Print, wonderful. Just don't pirate them. Uh, you know, if you buy a copy used, that's perfectly legal. I'd rather you bought it new because I don't get royalties on used sales. But hey, you know, as long as you buy it legally, I'm all for it. David, can we go back to a point you mentioned a moment ago, which is something that Matthew and I were both curious about? You talked about uh, mm-hmm. putting Kirk in that situation in the two caves and the past lives and how Kirk mm-hmm. would react to that. And it got me thinking about in the Kelvin timeline when you're writing and how you find the character voices, given the different yes. histories and the ages and such of the characters. And I was thinking, like, how would prime timeline Kirk have re- reacted to the same situation versus this Kirk being a bit fresher out of the gate as a captain? So just using that as a springboard, what can you tell us about how you find the voices of the Kelvin timeline characters compared with the Prime Universe characters? Well, of course, it all goes back to the source material. In this case, the 2009 feature film. Um, That was all I really had to work with at the time I developed the book. Into Darkness was still years in the future, and nobody had any idea that that was coming down the pike. So what I did in terms of finding the voices, I started with the universe before the characters. And I wanted to develop a story about these characters and their adventures now that they're, you know, cohered as a crew, something that would only be possible in their fictional universe. I wanted a story that could not be trans, uh, transplanted into the original series uh, because it's a very different universe with very different versions of the characters. Uh, so I started with a story that built off of the dramatic situations and the dramatic questions that I felt were prominent at the end of the first movie. And then as I thought about how the characters would react in those situations, I had to think in terms of not only uh, Chris Pine, let's say as an actor playing Kirk, how does Chris Pine deliver a line? What is his screen presence? What kind of uh, persona does he project when he's in a scene playing off of other actors? Um, How is Bruce Greenwood as Pike different from Jeffrey Hunter as Pike? How is Zachary Quinto as Spock different from Leonard Nimoy, Uh, particularly a young Leonard Nimoy, say, around the time of the the first pilot, the, the cage? So I had to take all this into account, and not just from multiple rewatchings of the movie, which helped, I also kept myself in the proper headspace by listening to the music from the first film, the soundtrack by Michael Giacchino, and specifically not allowing myself to listen to music from the original series. Mm -hmm. I wanted the music from the movie so that as I was writing and conceiving scenes uh, for the new book, I wanted them to be written in the mood and the tempo of the new movie. I always wanted to have that music that driving sort of sense of action tempo to keep me rooted in. This is how this universe feels. This is how these characters feel. There's always that sense of emergency of rushing to the next crisis, running away from this only to run into that. Um, 
But the most important thing was to remember just how different all these characters' lives had been. Uh, Jim Kirk is a fantastic example. If you take original series Jim Kirk, he was a by-the-book officer. He was described in the uh, second pilot, Where No Man's Gone Before, as during his academy years having been a stack of books with legs. Right. You know, had a reputation as a junior officer for being kind of a hard ass. He would put people on report for minor infractions, even if they were his friends. And, you know, one of them, I believe it was Finney, blamed him for ruining his career, uh, you know, uh, advancement, his, you know, climbing of the rank ladder, because Kirk put him on report for a serious screw up. Mm -hmm. Kirk didn't cut people slack. He was a good soldier, uh, a good officer, but he was also a stickler. And he was not the maverick that pop culture likes to make him out to be. He was very much uh, dutiful when he was even tempted to break uh, from orders. He would struggle with that in the original series, particularly first season, second season. He would often bend over backwards to accommodate the dumbest initiatives from the ambassadors he had to transport. Uh, and it was only when the, the ambassadors initiatives had completely failed and the ambassador's life was in danger that Kirk would now say, all right, now I have to step in. Now we're going to do it my way. Everything you've tried has failed. May I have your permission to do it my way? And the ambassadors would usually say, yes, please take over and save my stupid life. That's not the Jim Kirk of the movies. TOS Kirk was a guy who, as a teenager, lived on Tarsus Four. He was there when Kodos the Executioner uh, committed genocide in the name of, you know, he killed half of the colony to save the other half. It was grotesque. It was gruesome. Young Jim Kirk in the Prime Universe learned the hard way not to trust power. He learned that power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. He learned that it's very easy to abuse power and that if you have it, you must use it wisely. You must use it with caution. You must use it with compassion. The Jim Kirk of the Kelvinverse universe hasn't been put through any of this. He hasn't gone through these terrible trials of fire, these terrible moral and uh, existential horrors. He hasn't lived through that. He was a punk who got into bar fights while trying to pick up girls, who resisted the notion of joining Starfleet. He grew up without his father, which is not the same uh, as Prime Kirk. Mm -hmm. He, you know, was right, you know, as a kid, was perfectly happy to send a car, you know, careening into a gorge. Uh, you know, he's a hothead. He's not the stack of books. He's not the studious bookworm that prime universe Kirk was, and he didn't live through Tarsus four. And because he went from cadet to somehow captain of the enterprise in about 72 hours, right. Uh, which a decision to this day, <laughs> I disagree with, but there it is. And we have to deal with it. He has had a very different career track. This is not a guy who spent 14 years as a junior officer on the Farragut, uh, on the Lexington, this is not a guy who has come up through the ranks uh, under other commanders. This is not a guy who had to watch 200 of his shipmates on the Farragut die uh, because he thought he was too slow to pull the trigger on the Dicoronium cloud creature. He, he's never been through any of that. He's never suffered those losses, those moments of doubt. He's never been through the crucible of command training uh, on the job. So 
when he takes the captain's seat, you know, at a very tender young age, even younger than he did in the Prime Universe, with no command experience, no junior officer experience, this is going to be a kid who's going to have to make a lot of pretty heavy-duty mistakes the hard way. He doesn't have a lot of experience to draw on. So he's going to be making seat-of-his-pants decisions. He's also a hothead. He's prone to argue. He's prone to fight. He does not respect authority. He does not respect ambassadors. He doesn't respect governments. And he doesn't like being told what to do. He's going to butt heads with people. He butted heads with uh, Sarek in the first Star Trek movie. He wasn't going to knuckle under to Sarek or Spock or anybody else. He was perfectly willing to argue with just about anyone who stepped into his path. So this is clearly someone who has a very different command style. And then you take Spock, again, doesn't have the long history of service aboard starships, didn't really get a chance to go on that protracted mission with Pike, uh, didn't have the Talos IV mission experience. Uh, and then, of course, in the Kelvinverse, he has watched his homeworld be destroyed along with most of his people. He watches his mother die right in front of him. Uh, and, of course, Sarek has just lost Amanda, something that didn't happen to him in the Prime Universe. So this has radically altered the father-son dynamic, changed their attitude about who they are, the lives they live, and how they live in relation to Vulcan culture. All of that has to be taken into account. And it's this way with all of the characters. Uh, instead of the wise old country doctor of bones, now we have the cynical, urbane uh, Carl Urban doctor, uh, Dr. McCoy, who is kind of a pessimist and prone to complaining a hell of a lot. Uh, you've got Scotty, who in the Prime Universe was, you know, stable enough. He was third in command. In this universe, uh, he's a bit of a loon. I really don't know you want him to be third in command in the Kelvinverse. Um, Uhura is different. Sulu is different. Everybody is different. The whole universe is different. It has a different feel, a different tempo, a different style. Everything looks different. Everything works differently. Um, and all of that, I mean, I just I had to process all of that and let go of what I thought Star Trek was and mm -hmm. say, all right, in this version of Star Trek, this is what is start from here and go forward from here. Forget about what you knew. This is where you have to work from now. And when yeah. you have a completely different set of starting assumptions like that, it changes the directions that you go and it changes how you get there. Well, especially keeping in mind that at the time that you wrote this, you really only had two hours to go on. When we look at it now, we think, okay, well, there's been three movies and there's been all these comic books and all, but none of that was around at the time that you did this. So that's where I find it very interesting. Well, and I was going to say too, I, and I really appreciate that you went through that thought process, David, because, you know, I... And anybody could have lazily written uh, a Star Trek book and and just basically ported over TOS and put a new skin on it, you know. And and that's n absolutely, as you mentioned, that's not what this is. This is a completely different universe with uh, everybody having a completely different background. And even the way the universe kind of works, it feels faster and more urgent i mean the the classic line george lucas you know it's faster and more intense i mean that's this universe and so you i think rightly picked up on that and and this book feels like a kelvin timeline story and i thought you did such a fantastic job in that and to me that's the thing that made this so enjoyable as a read because 
you didn't take the easy way out. You took, I mean, that would have taken a lot of thought. Okay, how does all this work? And you really poured that into the story. And I think it absolutely works for this book. And it makes it, that's what makes it so successful to me. Um, And so I'm really thankful that you put all that hard work and thought into it because, you know, it could have been a fine book, but for my money, this was a great book because you didn't take the easy way out. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And something I, so you were talking so eloquently about Kirk and something that really struck me then about this Kirk is, and and it's something I had put on the outline because I was like, I have to ask David about this because Kirk in this universe seems to have such a strong moral compass, especially in this story. He does seem to know what the right thing to do is, regardless of what laws are. Like he, His goal is to do the right thing um, based on, on some kind of moral code. And, and, and what made it really interesting was it being so strong in him, I was kind of wondering where you thought that this Kirk got that. Was it from his uh, his interaction with Pike? Was it from something he, he thought maybe he got from his mother? Where do you think Kirk gets this idea of doing what is right regardless of the consequences? I think that it comes from two places. The first, I think, is that uh, he took to heart what Pike told him when Pike encouraged him to throw in his hat and uh, apply to Starfleet Academy. That was the first thing. You know, he's saying, you, know, you have the potential to be someone great. You know, your, your father was the commander of a starship for seven minutes and he saved 900 lives. I challenge you to do better. I challenge you to be better. And I think that that challenge from Pike becomes a defining moment for Kirk. In the back of his mind, even when it's not written, even when it's not said, there's always the voice of Pike in the back of his mind saying, do better, be better. Mm, And the other part of it is that what I strove to find was a kind of common thread between this version of Jim Kirk and original Jim Kirk. And what I found eventually, and this, you know, again, I, I was writing this at the time with only the first movie to go on, but I think it's borne out by what we see in both the second and third movies, what we've seen in the comics. And it also comports with the prime universe in that I think what really is at the heart of Jim Kirk as a character is love and compassion. He is a compassionate, decent, caring human being who cares about the fate of other people, Mm -hmm. uh, who cares about something bigger than himself. And he's willing to fight for it. He's willing to get a bloody nose over it. He's willing to take his lumps to do the right thing because I think he is driven by a desire to do right by other people. And I think that he was in denial about that when we met him in the first movie, he had sort of had this hard scrabble existence after losing his father. Uh, And I think he was in denial about the fact that he had the potential to be great and that Mm -hmm. he was the sort of people that others could count on. He was running away from his essential goodness at the beginning of the first Star Trek film uh, from the Bad Robot crew. And that was the tragedy of his characters, that he was running away from the very thing that made him good. And I think that that was the importance of meeting uh, Pike, uh, meeting Christopher Pike in that movie, in that moment when he did, 
he's at the moment where he's at a, a threshold in his life. He can either go off the deep end on his path to self-destruction, or he can turn it around, stop running from what he really is and who he really is, and fulfill his potential, fulfill his destiny. His first best destiny is to command a starship to be out there doing some good in the universe, standing up for something, fighting for something, for an ideal, uh, for, for the law, or even just, you know, to reduce the overall quotient of sentient suffering in the universe, uh, which by itself is a noble goal. So I was basically looking to find a way into that universal truth of Jim Kirk in both the Prima universe and the Kelvin universe. Um, and I think it's summed up on the, you know, in the last line of the book, you know, a bit of a spoiler here, but not too much where he's been put through all these questions of existential belief and past lives and whatever. And Kirk is still maintaining a bit of that attitude of being the, the agnostic and McCoy says, well, then what do you believe in Jim? And Kirk has to sort of look back, uh, you know, look over his shoulder and he sees this sort of sweet moment happening at the back of the bridge between Spock and Uhura. And he understands, he says, I believe in love bones. I believe in love. And I thought that's probably one of the most honest things Jim Kirk would ever say. Yeah. And I, I, you mentioning that really brought up something I thought was really cool about this book was the, the whole talk about belief, you know, and, and, uh, and in many ways, I, Star Trek didn't really talk too much about that uh, in the original series, other than to kind of shine a light on believing in false things or false gods. You know, uh, Kirk mm-hmm. was very good about uh, showing uh, people the the uh, the wrongness of their belief or putting their faith in the wrong God. Um, but- Although it's interesting in that he didn't necessarily uh, poo-poo all of spirituality. Yeah, if you look absolutely. at, for instance... If you look at who mourns for uh, Adonais, uh, when Apollo is trying to get them to, you know, worship him, uh, you know, he says, you know, do you don't, you no longer worship the old gods or uh, whatever. And Kirk says, we find the one sufficient. Yeah. Which implies that the Abramic faiths are still going strong in the 23rd century. And that even if Jim Kirk himself is not necessarily a believer. He knows that there are plenty of people who are. And yeah. another thing that's interesting is in the movie Star Trek V, uh, whether or not one considers it disavowed or you know stricken from canon or whatever, let's assume that it's canonical. It is, it's there, we accept it. And there's the great moment where they finally you know get to Shakari and they confront the entity at Shakari. And Kirk gets the absolutely historically, you know, fantastic line. What does God need with a starship? Now, some people interpret this line to mean that, you know, he's questioning the very nature of God, except that he's not. What if what this line means is Jim Kirk does believe in some sort of benevolent loving divine power maybe he can't name it maybe it's not necessarily the judeo-christian god maybe it Mm -hmm. is but maybe he believes in it so passionately that it that he cannot look at this malicious malevolent entity which is clearly a sham and allow it to pass itself off as god maybe what makes kirk angry is not the notion of god itself but that this clear sham dares to put on the name 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it, yeah. it's possible that Kirk is a man of faith. Yeah. No, I would I would wholeheartedly agree because I would say in in the TOS era, what what I see Kirk really do is shine a light on again on what he 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 believes to be false gods for people um, and and not but not poo pooing the idea of, of any kind of spirituality and or religion in general, but just mm-hmm. pointing out where false belief is being held by people that's keeping them oppressed. And yeah, he doesn't like hypocrisy. No, he doesn't like abuse of power, whether it's military power, religious power, political power, economic power. Anytime someone takes a voice or color of authority and uses it to enrich themselves or empower themselves at the expense of others, particularly at the cruel or hypocritical expense mm-hmm. of others, Kirk always fought against that, yes. no matter who it was, no matter where it was. So in this, Kirk is is confronted with this idea of somebody really believing in him in this book the way that Pike did. And that had mm-hmm. a huge impact, as we talked about, and, and you know where you thought his moral compass kind of comes from. Uh, and helping him be a better version of himself. Um, and I, I thought it was really interesting because Spock tells him that he doesn't think it really matters necessarily what one believes. It's what about it's what one chooses to do. And I thought that that was an interesting way to put it. And yet I think actually it's I'm not used to Spock being wrong, but I think Spock is not quite right here because. What one well, I think what Spock to... actually said was it's uh, better to know oneself than to believe in oneself. True, but I still don't think Spock is quite right because I feel like you have to be able to, um, you you have to have some sort of like belief structure or else you wouldn't you, your your actions are going to be the the byproduct of what you believe. What you believe about yourself, what you believe about the world, what you believe about the mm-hmm. universe, and so anyway, just it, to me, it was just interesting because this whole book is talking about this, the different ways that people believe, and I really appreciated there just being an openness of dialogue between that, even between you know um, the Acheron uh, mystic, uh, and how would you pronounce his name, David? Because I don't want to get Gavita Ren. Gavita Ren, um, you know, even him, you know, and and in the end, I thought it was really beautiful that. Kirk becomes the person here who's most open in this universe as he is in the TOS universe. And I think you rightly pulled this over too. like Kirk is actually one of the most open minded people that we have in Star Trek. Um, he He's never going to immediately close the door on idea just because it doesn't comport with his worldview and he can't prove it immediately. Um, and I just mm-hmm. really liked that this Kirk is like that too because I I feel like it makes sense for this Kirk to have that same part of of the original series Kirk, um, and uh, so yeah I just really the whole the whole all the conversations they have around that I thought were really fascinating and and where it actually just leads Kirk in this book I mean he he does the classic Kirk thing where he is willing to sacrifice his own life if need be to save you know thousands millions billions save of others. millions save his ship uh yep. save his crew i think you're right though about spock actually being uh, a little bit wrong here he does sort of take the wrong tack but he takes it for the right reason right he's uh <laughs> he's trying to argue for rationality he's trying to protect his captain his crew but and his friend like he he, he and i his don't friend, know if he'd admit yeah. it yet but yeah it's his friend 
<laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he does the right thing for the wrong. He does the wrong thing for the right reason. Um, so in that respect, I think his error, if one can really call it that, is forgivable. But I think what's also important is to remember, again, we're dealing with a much younger version of Spock than what we saw in the original series. He's a younger man, a younger officer, and he is only now just embarking on that journey that we had to see Spock go through in the original series and then the first six Star Trek movies where he learns that wisdom is not the uh, logic is not the end of wisdom. It is only the beginning. It is just the first step on the path. And the journey that Spock takes in the prime universe, emotionally and and logically, spiritually, if if you will, is learning to integrate uh, and syncretize the different aspects of his nature, the human and the Vulcan, the logical and the emotional. He has to see beyond simple logic and realize that real life and being complete as an individual is more complicated than that. It's more complicated than the binary of logical, not logical. Yes. Uh, That some things are not logical questions that, you know, not every question can be defined within a a, a parameter of logic. Some things go beyond that and you have to be able to think uh, more broadly than that in order to more fully experience the universe. And, I think what's interesting is that the Spock we have in the Kelvin verse, because of the losses he has suffered, because of the loss of the Vulcan culture, the loss of his mother, uh, and also because of the relationship that he has embarked upon with Uhura, he is probably far closer to his human half than Spock of the prime universe was. He's, uh, you know, he's going to be more in touch with his emotions, with his primal side. And that's part of what saves him near the end of the book when he is uh, assaulted. But it's interesting that because he is now a little further away from his logical uh, upbringing, uh, the influence of Sarek, uh, the influence of the Vulcan side of his culture, maybe this Spock is going to go down a different road where he's, going to need to at some point you know rein in his emotions whereas the other spock had to learn to grow beyond logic maybe this one is going to have to learn not to let his emotions uh run away with him maybe he's going to have to learn to calm himself down maybe he's going to have to find another way to find that sense of balance Uh, i don't know if we're going to see enough of the character if there are going to be enough more movies or if that version of the character will recur in mass media long enough for us to see that. But I think it's an interesting notion to say, how will his journey towards spiritual wholeness be different from that of prime universe Spock and and what form will that journey take and where will it lead him? I don't know the answers to that, but I think that they are fun questions to ask. Hmm. Well, we're talking about, Spock a lot here and cultural influence and the two sides of him. And of course, the needs of the many is a big theme in Star Trek uh, centered on Spock. And in this book, we talk a bit about that and look at Spock's responsibility to his people and how Linnell says he has a responsibility for the procreation of the Vulcan race and such. And Spock says that being selfish is not always wrong. And 
looking at the world today raises some questions about, and especially for me, I'm American, but I've lived half my life in Japan. So my thinking is kind of split between cultures in this specific sense as well. And the question is, like, what responsibility do we have to the culture that we live in, the group to which we belong, versus individualism? And how how do you talk about that in terms of Spock in the story? Well, I think his reference to selfishness is not always wrong. I think what he's talking about there is that he feels that he doesn't have uh, a burning responsibility to be involved in the uh, recreation of the Vulcan race, that he doesn't have to be there to procreate, etc. Because what he knows that Sarek does not know is that the old version of him, the prime universe counterpart uh, under another name, has sort of taken on that biological responsibility on behalf of younger Spock, hmm. freeing younger Spock to explore other things in life that are important to him so that he is not simply going to be a slave to this biological imperative to repopulate the Vulcan species. So when he's referring to selfishness, he's referring to the fact that he feels that he can lead a more meaningful and uh, productive life uh, if he follows his own agenda rather than the societal agenda. Uh, and of course, there's also just the simple fact that the line selfishness isn't always wrong uh, is a rush reference. Uh, it goes back to the song Anthem uh, off of the Fly By Night album. Uh, and if you know, I can be counted on for nothing else uh, in a novel, it's a, a good rush <laughs> reference or 10 or 20. Um but as far as, you know, the question of what do we owe society, I think everybody, uh, I think individualism has gone a bit too far sometimes in the West. There's been too much emphasis uh, on the great man theory of history, which is bull****, uh, pardon my French. Uh, I think that there's too much emphasis on the individual, the me, 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 my individual rights, my personal rights. Mm -hmm. I think that those who stress their rights or their freedoms without also addressing the responsibilities that come with them. Well, that's not freedom. That's adolescence. Um, yeah. Freedom comes with responsibility in order to be free within a society. One must also realize that we have certain obligations to society. We have obligations to one another as human beings. Um, I think anyone who is a fan of the brilliantly written sitcom, the good place uh, we'll recognize this in the argument that is put forth by the character Chidi uh, to the character of Eleanor during the first season. The principal question of philosophy that we need to concern ourselves with in order to lead better lives is what do we owe to one another? Both in terms of uh, physical resources, uh, spiritual respect. What is it that we owe to one another? Uh, and Star Trek, I think, has sort of definitely made its mark in this field. It has made it very clear that it has defined a future where nobody has to worry about being out on the street. Nobody has to worry that they're not going to have another meal. There appears to be essentially universal housing. They've developed clean fusion power and other sources of renewable energy uh, so that there's an energy surplus. Uh, it is an economics of surplus that defines at least the Federation uh, and, at least, and particularly during the 23rd and early 24th century. Um, 
you know, there, there's a sense of there's probably something the equivalent of universal basic income. There's universal uh, health insurance. People, you know, are rewarded if they come up with something great, if they do great work, if they're a great artist, a great you know cook or a brilliant chef. There are rewards for that. But if you're not one of the few who happens to be the best at what you do or the elite, you don't have to live in poverty. So at some point, society in the Star Trek universe realized human dignity and being able to hold up our heads and say we are a good people, we are a good civilization. Part of that means not letting any member of your civilization wallow in degradation, not letting any member of your society be exploited. Uh, you know, realizing that everyone has a right to not just die with dignity, but to live with dignity. That people should not be made to beg for scraps at the table. People shouldn't be made to beg just for the right to exist and be part uh, of a society. Uh, that we are not defined by our bank account. We are not defined by our gross domestic product. We are not defined, our worth is not dependent upon our ability to produce value. That's not what it's about. At some point, it just became about respect for sentient beings, learning to live together in peace, and just saying, as long as you know the way you live your life doesn't impair or prohibit someone else from living their best life, you know, adults are adults. People can live as they live. Uh, and I think Star Trek figured that out a long time ago. And sadly, it seems most of our modern world has not. Right. Well, and that was interesting, too, because on the other side of that, you have the complete opposite of, you know, Linnell, who's, spoiler alert for everyone, actually to Pring, who's right. trying to bring Ston back in this really creepy, you know, misuse of, of everything of, of Vulcan religion. Uh, Which was you a know, great twist, just, by the way, David. It was I great. It did was not great. see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> no, me oh, either. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and I, I should, I, I was telling Chris before you came on, I was like, I totally should have seen it coming because it, it's the perfect twist. But like, I loved that she is the antithesis to everything that really the needs of the many in this whole idea. Like she is. She's all about the needs of the one. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. but she's also a proof of how you can twist that into such mm -hmm. horrible things. Um, and well, because so she thinks on certain level yep. that what she's doing is for the good of the Vulcan exactly. people. Exactly. And that because, you know, Spock, who has spurned her many a time. I mean, if we think about the fact that uh, Vulcans were probably supposed to get to Ponfar at a much younger age uh, than, like, Spock is, I think, already in his late 20s at the very minimum, possibly his 30s by the time a muck time happens at the beginning of season two. Um Supreme has been waiting a long damn time in the prime universe <laughs> for Spock to come around and, and actually, you know, feel the pond far. She was probably thinking she was going to be married off years ago. So when she took Stan as a lover, it was probably seemed perfectly logical to her. She probably was thinking, well, Spock appears to be half human. Uh, well, he is half human. That appears to have short-circuited his uh, Ponfar instinct. He should have come back at like the age of 21 or 28, and I don't know what the hell's going on with this guy, but he doesn't seem to be coming back, so I'm going to just take a guy and be done with this. And then suddenly, bam, you know, the next Ponfar cycle comes around and delayed reaction. Now Spock 
has to come home in a muck time and, and deal with all this. And now Topringa's thinking, and what am I supposed to do with my side piece? God damn it. And she devises this whole selfish mess uh, because she sees the opportunity. It's like the moment he brings Kurt down with him, she sees the opportunity and sets her diabolical plan from the episode of Muck Time in motion. So we know from the Prime Universe that T'Pring is diabolical. She's selfish. Uh, she's capable of rationalizing whatever she likes. But she's... She's pretty cold. She's a cold-hearted, mean person who will do anything. And she was basically setting up Spock uh, in, you know, a mock time. Uh, she was putting, creating a scenario where he was either going to die or kill his commanding officer and face court-martial and prison and everything that was going to come with that. And you know, what was going to happen to him the next time he had Pond Far? Well, he's going to be in prison. <laughs> and tough luck for him. Uh, meanwhile, she was going to get everything she wanted. And so we know that T'Pring is not quite right in the head. Uh, now, add to that the destruction of Vulcan, the death of Stan, And my thinking of how she got her hands on the Vulcan arc uh, that has Stan's Katra in it. Well, if we look at a muck time, the implication here is that Spock's family... They're basically like the Kennedys or the Rockefellers. There's some sort of a major political dynasty. They are considered to be wealthy. They are famous. They are politically influential. Uh, so it would make sense that to whom would they betroth one of their sons? Probably someone who is equally influential, but in some other way. So my thinking was that T'Pring, uh, based on the fact that T'Pau was going to be the officiant uh, over the ceremony, T'Pring must be somebody in the spiritual side of Vulcan. She must be someone who's pretty high up in like the halls of ancient thought, someone who has access to the, the, the Catrick, uh, not the Ark, but the Catrick uh, storage facility mm -hmm. or whatever, the Catrick temple. Uh, so this is a woman who has significant influence. Uh, but once again, she doesn't want Spock. Spock has this reputation in the Kelvin verse where he has shunned the Kelvin, uh, excuse me, the Vulcan Science Academy. Um, maybe she just is embarrassed by him and she wants out. But once she loses Stan, now she realizes, okay, I can maintain my honor by putting Stan's Contra into Spock. Nobody needs to know. Everyone will just think I'm with Spock. I get my mate, I get to help repopulate Vulcan, but I also get, you know, uh, I, I get credit for marrying Spock, even though Spock is dead, and really, who needs to know? So you've got this whole diabolical plan with uh, T'Pring, and it's, it's really just the B story to the book, and it doesn't connect too directly to the A story, except in the question of belief, you know, well, how does T'Pring rationalize uh, a Vulcan logical philosophy with this clearly vicious sociopathic thing that she's doing. <laughs> yes. um, the funny thing is, is that was sort of the jumping off point for the whole book. Like the first thing I thought of when I was thinking, all right, what would I want to write as a story in the Kelvin verse? The first thing I thought of was, well, I'd want to do the Kelvin verse version of a muck time. I want to know what the heck happened to T'Pring. You've lost the whole Vulcan culture. The whole notion of repopulating the species is now 
prominent in everyone's mind. Uh, but, you know, I'm thinking there's things like, you know, but I'm, my mind is swirling. I'm like, well, there's the, there's Katrick arcs and maybe Stan is already dead. And I'm like, I was trying to figure out how to make the T'Pring thing, the main story of the book. But eventually I realized that it just, it didn't have enough legs to support an A story, but it worked great as the B story that comes out of nowhere at the end of act two and basically clubs poor Spock over the head right at the end of act two, as you're going into the big final showdown of the book, I'm like, yeah, that works better. Having that as basically the, the hidden dagger in the boot rather than the main engine of the story ended up working better. So that, although it was what originally impelled me to start thinking about the story, that's how it ended up where it was. Mm. Something I wanted to ask you uh, Tied into the kind of the A story, we have the Akron and, you know, we have this very interesting society. Um, you know, they're they're not a warp civilization, but they have been influenced by warp civilizations looking to to use their um, dilithium. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've got these uh, mystics on their planet and, and, and you've also got, you know, the, the more... Um, non-religious the military and everything and to me were you influenced by the dark crystal at all because i really was feeling that um with some of this story and especially with like the the weird alternate energy I never even i never even thought about that but you know it's really? funny i love that movie as a kid I love the Dark Crystal as a kid, you know, the, the Skeksis. And yep, the, yep. All the, and I know there was the recent uh, sort of prequel uh, mm-hmm. to the Dark Crystal that Netflix did. It's very good. Uh, of course, you know, that was just done in like the last year or two. That, you know, when this book was written, that was many years in the future. Um, but, yeah, the Dark Crystal, I hadn't even, if there's any similarities there in terms of theme or visuals, uh, they were not intentional, um, but it could have been one of those things where it rooted in my subconscious because, again, you know, around the age of 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, whenever The Dark Crystal came out, I remember loving that movie when I was uh, when I was very young. David, let me ask you a question. That this probably something you haven't thought very much of when you're writing the book, but it just popped in my head because of recent events and what we're talking about here with the destruction of Vulcan and how it shifts the culture and looking at uh, T'Pring's kind of diabolical shift in the way that she's thinking and looking at traditions. When you have a large-scale disaster, I think that the destruction of a planet is probably the largest scale that I can think of in this situation. But right now, we have the coronavirus, which is a global uh, event. And here in Japan, for example, because we've had a 99.9% drop in tourists or visitors coming into the country suddenly, and also just here at home, people are not going out to eat. Part of our culture, our cuisine, traditional Japanese cuisine, which is a UNESCO intangible cultural heritage, is like in danger of fading away because of the loss of business. And then we have another practice, which is in business, you have to stamp papers with personal seals and business seals, which is very tedious. And those are just two examples of cultural uh, practices or parts of a culture that are really impacted by a natural disaster. And so putting this into the Star Trek context, what I was thinking as I was reading the book, and I was curious about how you view it as a writer when you're you're thinking 
about taking an event and then progressing that. How do you see the destruction of Vulcan as shifting how Vulcans think about cultural traditions and beliefs that we've seen over the years in the series? And how is that conveyed differently through the views and the actions of Sarek and Spock and Linnell slash Tapring in this story? Well, I mean, if it were up to me, I would think that they would they would need to continue to hold to the teachings of Surak. The teachings of Surak are the entire foundation of the culture. And without that, they would pretty much regress uh, to being ruled by their extremely violent emotions. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something they would cling to. I think what, uh, if I'd had time to explore this in more detail, and if I had been writing a very different kind of book, what I might have explored was the notion that based with the need to repopulate the species, they're going to probably do away with the whole notion of the Ponfar. It's never really been made clear whether the Ponfar is simply that they suppress the mating urge um, for, you know, uh, the purpose of, you know, emotional control or if it's an actual biological imperative that for some reason they're only capable of mating every seven years. I've never seen any compelling evidence that Vulcans are only capable of mating every seven years. In fact, there's every reason to think they're capable of mating whenever the hell they want. Well, I feel like in the Enterprise Enterprise incident, that's indicated. There's the Enterprise incident. There's also... Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, yeah. where we have to assume that Savik couples with rapidly aging Spock multiple times over the course of several hours in order to save his life as right. he goes through various Ponfar cycles. Um, so she basically, you know, has to knock loose with him probably three or four times over the course of several hours. Uh, but I think that it's because you know you've got this notion that it's like a pressure cooker; pressure builds up. And you've got to release it. And they probably figured out at some point, seven years is pretty much about as much as the average Vulcan can take. And I think that part of that might be societally programmed rather than biologically determined. But once it goes off, I think the problem here is that Spock uh, basically just held it for way too damn long. And then he finally went off like a pressure cooker in a mock time. I think that, the whole notion of Ponfar and the limitation on procreation, uh, et cetera, that would be one of the cultural shibboleths of Vulcan society that would just have to go in the sh- for the sake of repopulating and recreating the Vulcan species, bringing it back from the brink of extinction in anything less than, you know, two or three centuries you would have to let go of that. You cannot uh, feasibly repopulate a species like that. And the other thing which I think might be interesting is if that led to other people questioning some of the other precepts of logic that are in the teachings of Sorak, in the Kelvin verse, uh, we might have seen a very interesting inversion on the concept of Vulcan Romulan reunification, mm-hmm. whereas in the prime universe, that's an initiative that happens in the 24th century, and we see that it's basically happening on the Romulan side, that there are those within Romulan society who want to reunify with their Vulcan uh, cousins and uh, sort of rebuild what used to be. What if in the Kelvinverse, 
facing potential extinction, uh, you know, facing, you know, the loss of everything else and having no other real place they can call home. What if the remaining Vulcan diaspora were to seek refuge among the Romulans? What if the Romulans become, you know, at some point someone makes the argument, that's actually the next logical thing for us to do. We aren't numerous enough to rebuild our species on our own, but we are biologically so close to the Romulans as to be indistinguishable. We might have to let go of the culture of logic in order to survive. Why don't we just take what we have left and go to the Romulan Empire? Because the Romulans don't just live on the Romulan homeworld. It's an empire. They've got planets that they've colonized all over the place. Why don't we just find a nice Romulan colony to settle on? That would be an interesting inversion of the whole Vulcan-Romulan reunification question. What if the Vulcans of the Kelvinverse decide that's our best path for survival? Why don't we go and become Romulans? It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. One, one last thing that I was really thinking of with this book... <laughs> And it was just this huge mistake in the first place of, of being on this planet uh, and and completely disregarding the the prime directive. Obviously, that 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 the other you know not Starfleet had done. You know, you're you're on this planet and and they were completely warped to civilization. No pun intended. Um, and in a way that made me think about the the things that fear kind of causes us to do or, or becomes the impetus for um, and the Acheron minister talked about the reason they pursued this dangerous weapon was because they're afraid of being taken advantage of by these off-worlders who are exploiting the dilithium and mm-hmm. it really I think you did such a great job of explaining in such a simple way of why the prime directive exists and why you're supposed to hold on to it because these people are not ready to be dealing with people that are vastly superior to them in every way. And how could they not fear all the time that somebody would just come in and take everything from them because they could. Um, and so I just really appreciated how you, um, you tied all that together in such a Star Trek way of, you know, this is, this is why we have the prime directive. This is why we don't do this. <laughs> And it's also, at the same time, an indictment of runaway capitalism. Uh, One of the weird sort of uh, dichotomies of Star Trek, and this goes back to the original series, is that the Prime Directive applies only to Starfleet, only to official diplomatic and military agents of the Federation. It does not apply to private citizens. It does not apply to private industry. There were many cases where Harry Mudd, Let's say he's a Federation citizen and acting on his own initiative, he got into a number of situations where he clearly would be in violation of prime directive, but just didn't care. And there was nothing they could do to him because prime directive doesn't apply to civilians or at the very least, it doesn't apply to non-governmental civilians. So uh, when you've got, uh, for instance, a mining consortium that goes out there and finds that there's reason to believe there's dilithium on this planet, and these guys have faster-than-light radio, well, they may not have warp drive, but we can at least talk to them. We can make a deal, and we can go down there. And suddenly, you know, you're, you've got this planet making deals with a private entity, and now things have started to go wrong. Well, now Starfleet can step in. It's not, it's not a prime directive violation anymore because contact has already been made. I think the whole reason the prime directive exists 
uh, and it's a strange contradiction that they allow private citizens to violate it willy-nilly. But one of the precepts of Star Trek is that it is only the official government arm and the military arm that are restricted in this manner. Um, And again, it's, it's almost like an issue of there's a personal liberty issue where they respect that private citizens may go out. uh, And as long as they don't do so under the color of authority of the Federation, as long as they're making contact as individuals, there's really nothing we can do to stop them. If someone is going to leave your authority, go out beyond your, federation space they're now in a system that is not under your jurisdiction um really what are you going to do about it (laughs) and uh, of course that would be and that's another interesting question to sort of attack in a future book if i were to really want to go that way because there is actually a legal precedent uh extra extra territorial authority um for instance the united states and many other countries uh express the belief that they have what is known as extraterritorial authority over their citizens. And one of the ways this comes out is that if an American, let's say, goes to another country, such as, say, Thailand or Cambodia, for the purpose uh, of you know, illegally engaging in sex tourism uh, where they abuse children, well, one might say, well, you know, the, those countries turn a blind eye to it, uh, you know, it happened in Thailand. Well, the United States government doesn't see it that way. If they find out that their citizens have engaged in this behavior while overseas in places like Thailand or Cambodia, they consider that a prosecutable offense. They consider that American law follows American citizens wherever they go, at least in certain cases such as this, uh, narcotics, uh, human trafficking, this sort of thing. It would be interesting to see, excuse me, what? Finances as well. Finances, yes. It would be interesting to see the Star Trek universe tackle the question of why don't we enforce prime directive and other such societal controls on private citizens when they leave our territory? What if the Federation were to start to uh, assert extraterritorial uh, authority? It hasn't so far, and you know, the, all the precedent so far has uh, contradicted that, but it would be interesting to see that. Uh, and how that would be received. And it would be an interesting discussion to have. I mean, it's a, a long-standing sort of philosophical debate. Uh, how do countries justify the concept of extraterritorial authority? How does one say that your laws follow your citizens uh, rather than being limited to the territory that is yours, uh, that, that is under your sovereign control? So that's a great point you bring up, and that's something more for me to think about. More fodder for future books. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think to me, one of the things that really came across with this book is how much I would enjoy being able to, to, to be in the Kelvin timeline more. I think there is so much to discover with the characters, obviously. Um, but there's, there's so many different places that you can go and different types of stories you can tell. And like you, you mentioned at the very beginning, we were talking about how different this universe is. It does give us a different spin uh, to be able to to do things with Star Trek that you couldn't necessarily do with with uh, you know the prime timeline, but still makes for a ton of fun. But also all of these thought provoking ideas, and and so hopefully, I you know I know they they released. Um, the other book by Alan Dean Foster and now yours. 
I would really hope that they would allow you guys to spend some more time here now that, you know, everything behind the scenes for Star Trek seems to be kind of coming under one roof, I guess. I don't know. I had no idea what's going on with all the rights issues there. But I just think it would be cool because this was a really fun book, but it was also a great book because you got to do what all good Star Trek stories do, which is you know, um, have thought-provoking ideas that make us think about our own world and, and how we live. So um, I'm really interested, David, as, as um, we bring it to a close, like, what have you got going on next? Obviously, you had um, your, you mentioned that you, you just had the, also the release of your um, uh, work that you've been working on for so long. The third book, I believe, came out in the series. Yeah. The Shadow Commission, book three of my Dark Art series from Tor. Yeah, so uh, plug anything you need to here and let everybody know what you've got that's come out and what's coming from you next. Well, those are the two biggies right there. Uh, the first is the book we've been talking about this whole hour, More Beautiful Than Death. Uh, I'd love it if people would pick that up. And, of course, there is The Shadow Commission, book three of my dark art series from tour that completes the series at least for the time being so if you're the sort of completist who likes to wait for all the books in a series to be out before you pick it up now is a great time to pick up the dark art series <laughs> absolutely which includes book one the midnight front and book two the iron codex all currently available in trade paperback ebook formats and audiobook formats wherever fine books are sold as for what I have coming up next, I have some short stories and anthologies that I'm doing for some friends. Uh, those are going to be kickstarted probably sometime in September, so keep an ear out for that. I'll promote the heck out of them on social media. I'm going to be doing a new Star Trek novel, which will be out probably at the end of 2021. It has not yet been announced, so I can't say anything about what the project is. I can't give you a title or anything like that. I'll just say it's, uh, it's going to be something big. It's going to be something else. As for that, uh, I hope to do more track novels in the future. Um, I'll have to wait and see what it is they want, what it is they need, where the opportunities are. I have uh, some other fun original ideas that I'm tinkering with. But in the meantime, I pay the bills by working as a consultant uh, for the Star Trek animated series. Uh, I worked on the first season of Lower Decks, which is airing now. And I am still working uh, on Star Trek Prodigy, seasons one and two which are mostly written uh and now they are in production and going forward so i'm uh, i'm continuing in my consulting capacity with prodigy probably through uh next year awesome and two so when nobody misses any announcements from you where can they find you on the interwebs Place to find uh, announcements of what new books and other things I have coming up is my website, davidmack.pro. So that's davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. From there, you'll find links to my social media pages on Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, and elsewhere. And if you want to see my angry rantings about politics and other things on Twitter, you can find me there at David Allen Mack, David Allen, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K, that's my handle on Twitter. Awesome, man. Well, I'm glad to hear that we'll we'll have you back uh, for another Star Trek book next year and hopefully more to come. But I, I have to say, you know, I really did love this book and I do hope that people pick it up because I would I would absolutely adore the fact that you guys get a chance to write in this universe. I think it would be fantastic. Well, thanks. Uh, I, I hope other folks enjoy it as much as you have. And uh, who knows, maybe someday I'll get to write more Kelvin adventures. 
Awesome, David. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, David. My pleasure. Well, Matthew, that was so wonderful having David on and exploring the thought process behind the book. And at least for me, we touched on a lot of very thoughtful topics and uh, areas that uh, some I had thought about when I was reading and some I hadn't. And it's just really amazing, uh, David's thought process when he writes. No, I absolutely agree with you, Chris. Um, And I I thought, you know, one of my favorite things, and and I think people could probably catch uh, this, was just how much thought David had put into writing a Kelvin Timeline book and how different it is than just what we know from the Prime Timeline. Yeah. And the fact that he went through that process... Uh, I am sure that he he probably had to think long and hard just about all of that, and it really shows. I, and I'm not just like, look, I'm not I'm not just kissing David's ass here. I, I'm not. Uh, I I really uh, loved this book. I I if I were to rate it, you know, I would give it four and a half out of five stars. I thought it was a fantastic Star Trek book set in the Kelvin timeline, and it absolutely made it, made me want more. So, you know, that what more could you want from a, this type of book? Well, everyone, if you'd like to share your thoughts on today's discussion or on this book, you can always contact us. The best place to join in the discussion is the Babel Conference, which is our listeners group on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come right up. If you're not yet a member, you'll need to click join. And also, please answer the questions, and then I'll be able to let you into the group. You can also send us an email. If you go to our website, trek.fm slash contact, and use the form there, choose Literary Treks, and then that email will come to Matthew and me. And you can find us on Twitter, where our username is trekfm. And Matthew, if people want to find you... What all do you have going on? Where should they go? Yeah, well, uh, don't forget to find us on the Goodreads group. Uh, you can see all the bookshelves with uh, what we've covered previously. Um, you can talk to listeners of the group. It's so much fun. Um, just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads. And that's a great place to catch up with uh, everyone who loves Literary Treks. Um, as well as Star Trek books in, in a really concentrated way. Of course, you could find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. Also, make sure that uh, you follow uh, the 602 Club, uh, which uh, Chris and, and I are thankful that uh, no, not only is it a podcast now, but we are branching out a little bit on the network, and, and we are going to have an entire wing devoted to things not Star Trek. So it's not just going to be the podcast, but it's going to be some other stuff. So we've got that in the works. Uh, so make sure you're following the 602 Club on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find what's going on there. Uh, I'm doing the orb here with you, Chris. When we get a chance, we're talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we do. We promise we're going to be back soon uh, and, and talking some more Deep Space Nine for you guys. Uh, also doing the 602 Club podcast with Christy Morris as we talk about all of the things that we love outside of the Star Trek universe. Uh, do uh, a couple of different shows there on the Nerd Party Network as well. I'll post with Drea Kaufman talking about the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time and doing aggressive negotiations with my good buddy John Mills talking about Star Wars every week. And so, uh, Chris, though, if people would like to catch up with you and just see what else you've got going on, because I know we're not only revamping the network a little bit, but um, you've got some fun things that you've started uh, as well. So, Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to uh, reclaim 
my uh, podcasting opportunities a little bit more. And as you said, of course, we're going to be doing new episodes of The Orb. And Larry Nemechek and I have been doing some new episodes of The Ready Room a bit more frequently. And in addition to that, I've started a new podcast, which is a Star Trek Universe podcast called Interphase. The first episode is already out, and I have several new episodes in the works right now. I'm going to be getting those out to everyone pretty soon. There's been a bit of a gap after the first episode because I've been tied up with the rebranding and restructuring of the network that we've had going on here, and uh, that's been taking up some time. But that podcast is about everything in Star Trek. Some people thought it was a Lower Decks podcast because that's what we talked about on the first episode, but it's actually a Star Trek universe podcast, all Star Trek, old and new. And we're going to be shaking up the format a little bit as well. So, you know, each episode could be a little bit different from episode to episode. So uh, please check those out. Uh, Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's where I'm most active. You can also find me everywhere in social media under that username. And I'm just excited to be talking about Star Trek again a bit on mic. And uh, as you mentioned, Matthew, we've got the 602 Club wing of the network that we've rolled out now. And I've got a few ideas for some non-Trek things too that might be coming down the pike. Uh, down the road a little bit. So that's where you can find me. If you would like to support the network, we can definitely use your help as we rejigger things a bit. If you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm, you can find out how you can help. I've got some new ideas coming up for Patreon perks and also just how we do things there and uh, bring everyone who's supporting us into the loop a bit more. So uh, that information will be coming soon. So please go check out patreon.com slash trekfm to find out how you can help us cover the expenses of operating the network because we do have a lot of overhead. And I would like to thank everyone who's supporting us right now and all of our associate producers for their support. Well, awesome, Chris. And we want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening. And until next time, Live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.